0: I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs, but how do you explain them to your customers?
1: Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup.
0: So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds?
1: Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio.
2: Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.
0: It's Lars. Thank you for checking out my podcast and have a great day. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. If you're a parent out there and you're concerned about the way your kids are going to do or are doing in public schools... I share your concern, and I say that as a product of public schools, K through 12. My wife was also in public schools, K through 12, and our adult kids were in public schools, K through 12. And yet and still, these days, the public schools are not exactly producing fantastic results. And the most recent assessment of those results, the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, says that things are even worse now. Now, of course, we're hearing a lot of politicians say, well, that's just the pandemic. What they ignore is the fact that it was going on before the pandemic. It is going to go on after the pandemic and that this is just used as an excuse by folks like the teachers union. So why don't we take a look at what the real causes are? Ashley Varner joins me now, who's vice president of communications and federal affairs at the Freedom Foundation. Ashley, good to have you back.
3: Lars, it's always great to talk to you, but this is not a fun conversation to have, even though it's very important that we keep talking about it.
0: I'd I'd agree with you on that. And I know that a lot of my audience is going to say, Lars, you've explained many times you don't like unions in general. I don't, ab- I don't say that people shouldn't have the right to join a union. That's well-established in federal law. I'd even argue that unions are supported by the Constitution, the right of freedom of association, uh, the right of uh, the ability to, to associate with anyone you want. You can form an association and bargain collectively. And that's well-recognized in federal law. In fact, I always tell folks who say, well, the unions are being driven away. I said, no, they're not. It's never been easier to form a union than it is today or more well-protected under federal and state law. And yet the teachers union plays, uh, I think, a real pernicious role in the failure of American schools. Is there some support for that?
3: Absolutely agree with you, Lars. And even Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that stalwart conservative president, (laughs) uh, he did not think that having public sector unions was a good idea because he recognized uh, the problem that would come into play when you have unions bargaining with politicians. Who then make laws uh, without having the taxpayer present at the table? And and so this is when you talk about teachers unions. We're paying for those teachers unions because those teachers' salaries. Are, it's your money. It's my money. It's everyone listening to our voices right now. Um, but we don't get to have a say in what the teachers unions do. And now we see through this pandemic. You know that we they actually overplayed their hands. They didn't think this through, Lars, because. They wanted to use this as a strike. They didn't have to call. They kept kids at home uh, and learning on laptops if they were learning. Uh, but they, they got to give parents a front-row view of what was actually going on inside the classrooms that parents did not know their kids were being exposed to. So that's the one really genuine silver lining of this pandemic and the school closures is that uh, the teachers' unions exposed themselves Parents got to see what their kids were being taught or indoctrinated in, and now they have the knowledge of, and power to take back uh, the control over their own kids' education, which, you know, honestly, we just kind of let it go. The the country as a whole just kind of trusted the the schools, the education system, the teachers' unions to just teach their kids, and they maybe didn't pay all that much attention as to what was going on, but now you have parents as a brand-new constituency And whether they're registered Democrat or Republican, they want their kids to get a good education. And they are going to the polls very upset.
0: Yeah, and and they should be because, Ashley, um, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but a little over two years ago. As we're heading into the fall of the first year of the pandemic, there were, you know, public meetings and there were discussions about going into remote learning and things like that. And I remember one teacher just blew a gasket. It was a young lady from, I think, Philadelphia. And she said, we can't let the parents see what what's going on inside our classrooms. And and I think a lot of parents come. They came to find out why that teacher was so anguished over the idea that parents might actually see what was being taught because the teachers themselves understood some of the stuff we've been doing is not going to be approved by the parents. The only reason that they kind of signed off on it before is because they trusted us. And they said, we we assume you're doing right by our kids. And the minute they said, and you know, parents may see this on remote learning lessons, the teachers became apoplectic. Not many of them were as honest or perhaps as, you know, maybe not as discreet as that teacher to say, say it out loud, we can't let the parents see this. But that's exactly the message parents have been getting is, yeah, we've been teaching your kids and indoctrinating your kids, and you have no business telling us to do otherwise. And that, and then I'll throw in the other thing, when you said FDR saw the dangers of this, the one other element I'd throw in is not only are taxpayers not at the bargaining table, parents aren't at the bargaining table, they're forbidden to know what's in a contract till it's already signed but the other element that they don't have is the teachers unions can say to a politician uh, whether it's a school board member or a member of congress or a member of the state legislature don't you dare cross us because if you do all the donations we made to your campaign stop all the help we get by scaring up voters to vote for you stop and it'll go to your you know to your competitor to your opponent and we will get them elected instead of you so the politicians it's it's had a i think a corrosive effect on the agreement between politicians who say, we will represent the people in their best interests. And all of a sudden, the unions come in and say, no, you're going to represent the best interests of teachers unions. And if you don't, we'll take you out of office. And all of a sudden, the politician is effectively either forced or bribed into throwing away his commitment to the public and saying, my commitment is to make sure the teachers unions get whatever they need.
3: It's an excellent point, Lars, and you took the words right out of my mouth. We at the Freedom Foundation refer to this as the cycle of corruption, because you've got the the unions, especially the teachers' unions. They are some of the biggest funders in this whole country across the states of leftist politicians and their leftist agendas. And when it's their campaign checks that go to the politicians, who are the politicians going to listen to, just as you explained? Um, But what... What is heartening is if you have seen reports about the number of teachers who have just gotten fed up and they have left the teachers' unions, they've resigned their membership. Uh, since the COVID shutdown started in March of 2020, uh, if you've heard of the 74million.org, they did a study um, that over 80,000 teachers in just the 2020-21 school year hung up their union membership, and they stopped paying dues to Randy Weingarten and the AFT and the NEA. So that is a great start. And and I can't imagine uh, that it's only getting worse because teachers are getting fed up. The Freedom Foundation talks to teachers every single day across the country who are fed up. They thought that maybe they could just put their head down and teach in their classroom what they really wanted to teach, which is reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, but they realized that. So long as they are still paying union dues, they're funding this garbage, whether they agree with it or not. So we're helping teachers across the country leave their unions and stop, stop paying into these teachers' unions that are just politicizing our schools.
0: You know, just today, Ashley, I got an email from a, a listener, and he said his daughter came home with this photograph. And she had taken a photograph of the whiteboard, not a blackboard, in a modern classroom, and it had a list. And under it were all the negative stereotypes of and what they, the teacher had written was white girls and 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 white boys. And and there were some pretty nasty ones, including school shooter under white boys. And they said, well, they were talking about stereotypes. And I said, I'm willing to bet they didn't put up any POC stereotypes up there because that would have caused real trouble. But I thought this is the kind of indoctrination that's being shoved on your kids by members of Randy Weingarten's union. And and they're completely protected at the legislatures and and on Capitol Hill and by an American president who's fully bought in with what the teachers unions want. So, Ashley, I appreciate the update. Ashley Varner is with the federal, uh, she's with Federal Affairs at the Freedom Foundation. And by the way, on that subject, I'm glad to hear naysayers. If you want to tell me, no, no, that's not the way it works in my classroom. I'm glad for that. I know there are some conservative teachers out there. And if you want to sound off as a listener to this show, it's 866-HEY-LARS and naysayers go first. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. So when your kids go off to college, they're generally adults, 18 or greater. But would you want your 18 or 19-year-old daughter living in a sorority house where one of the occupants of that sorority house is a so-called transgender woman? Meaning, a biological man who now identifies as a woman. Alexa Schwerha joins me now, who's a reporter for Campus Reform and a Division II collegiate swimmer. Alexa, it's good to have you back. Thank you for having me. So, before we get into that topic, I want to ask you something. When you were a kid, when you were younger in, in K twelve school, did you ever go to outdoor school?
4: Outdoor remember... school. Um... Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's a thing out in in the Pacific Northwest. You know, they basically send the kids off to a camp for a week and they work in their regular lessons. And then you live in the woods. You know, you live in a ca- little cabin with counselors and all that. I thought this would relate to not only this about the sorority house, but about some of our conversations we've had about swimming where you've had to swim against biological males. I saw something refreshing the other day. There's this thing called outdoor school and usually it's it's many of the schools that send kids off at 11 or 12, about 6th grade, and they go to this, you know, week of, you know, living in cabins outside and they go get science lessons and other things that are all worked into it. One of the schools found out some of the kids said, "Hey, our uh, our you know, the each cabin would have one counselor, meaning an adult who would be in the cabin with them." And generally that would be, you know, girls have a girl counselor, you know, boys have a boy counselor. They had non-binary counselors. And some of the kids said, hey, I'm, I'm not comfortable with this. I don't know if it was the young ladies, the young men, they said this is, this is wrong. And they told their teachers, and their teachers called the principal, and the principal called the superintendent. And the superintendent said, hey, fire up the bus, bring them home. And they did. They said, this is wrong. We're not going with this program. At least there is some sanity out there in education, at least in a few places.
4: Well, I have to say that's definitely great to hear because that's not what we're seeing happen on college campuses.
0: No. And in fact, I would expect now let's get into the story you wrote about for campus reform. This involves Kappa Kappa Gamma the first sorority in University of Wyoming's history to accept an openly transgender student into its ranks. So the sorority says it's okay for a biological male who now identifies as female to live in the sorority with all these other young ladies.
4: You got that right. But not only is the male student allowed to be in the sorority, like you said, those male students are allowed to stay in the sorority housing. And this unfortunately is this new normal that female college students are going to have to consider when they're deciding where to go to college. College freshmen are as young as 18 years old, but it now might be the new normal that they're forced to share a bedroom and a shower space with male students who identify as women. And that's because the transgender movement is lying to women about what gender equality actually means. There is nothing inclusive or supportive about giving up your own safe places as a woman. To a man, it's, it's regressive, it's misogynistic, and it's putting women second to men.
0: Well, and Alexa, I've told people, they said, well, you're worried about people being assaulted. I said, even if you say everybody is on their best behavior, is there an issue of privacy here? I've told people that when I was a TV reporter, we'd travel a lot of times, you know, sometimes to other countries, sometimes to other parts of the United States. And when there was tight housing, you you would sometimes house, you know, a male reporter and a male uh, TV photographer in the same housing. You'd sometimes put two females together. But the station, you know, the TV stations I worked with never would have thought to say, hey, Lars, uh, you're taking this female photographer with you and there's only one hotel room. So you'll be sharing the room. They would have said, well, that's just not right. You can't do that. And and yet there doesn't seem to be that same sensibility today. And that's even assuming people who are adults who are acting professionally. You know, you know, you may have shared housing with your family under similar circumstances where you say we're all going to be in the same tent, but everybody's going to be polite about space and privacy and all that. They're ignoring all of that, aren't they?
4: They absolutely are. You raise an excellent point. Of course, we have women's safety here, that is definitely a large concern. But we're also talking about privacy and the fact that women are uncomfortable when men are allowed to consistently invade their spaces. As a reporter for the Leadership Institute's Campus Reform, I've been covering the transgender movement intensively. I've spoken with women who have been victims of this radical, dangerous agenda. I've spoken with athletes who have lost opportunities because men took away spots on their teams and in competitions. And recently I spoke with a former sorority student who dropped out of her chapter because it was dismissing members who opposed admitting men into the ranks. Women's right to safety and privacy are clearly second fiddle when it comes to the radical left, and it's very insistent on making college campuses less safe for women.
0: Well, in fact, arguably, you could say the reason we have sororities and fraternities is because nobody would ever say, well, why don't we just put them all together? We'll just have all the young men and women live in the same house. You know, they can just be part of that can be Greek life, men and women, you know, living in the same house who, who don't have any, you know, they're not married to each other or anything else. It, 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 does it surprise you that this is coming out of a place like Wyoming?
4: It should be surprising for everybody. And what's surprising is that how much traction that this radical, dangerous agenda is gaining. It was just back in March that so we were talking about the NCAA Women's Swimming Championship, where Leah Thomas stole the competition from the women that had worked hard to make it to a high level of competition. And since reporting on that, I've covered a story with the College of the Ozarks losing, losing a lawsuit. Um, they're trying to prevent the Biden administration from allowing men to stay in women's dorms. Now we're talking about men being allowed to invade sororities. So what we need to watch out for is how fast this dangerous movement is gaining traction on college campuses. And more people need to be standing up because it's our daughters that are going to be bearing the front of this radical policy.
0: Well, I've got a, I've got a granddaughter who's probably 12 years away from going to college if she decides to go to college. But aren't there parents and grandparents who are standing up saying, this is wrong, you can't allow this kind of thing? And what do the colleges say in return?
5: Well, the
4: majority of Americans do oppose this radical movement to destroy women's integrity. That is important to note. Does not have the backing of majority of Americans. And people are speaking out. Female athletes are speaking out. Women on campuses are speaking out. But it's very hard to be heard when the higher education administrators are actively shutting them down because their concerns aren't being listened to. But it comes from the top down. It's coming from the Biden administration. We have the Department of Education that is trying to revise Title IX to include gender identity as a protective clause. So when you have the White House that is actively trying to crack down on women's rights and walk back 50 years of hard-earned women's rights in history, it's no surprising that the women who who are speaking out about this issue aren't being listened to.
0: Well, but when it comes to sororities and fraternities, does Title IX actually apply to them as well? Aren't they private organizations? I mean, they'd have to be sanctioned by the university to be on the campus and be part of that campus community. But are they affected by Title IX as well? Do you know?
6: Well, when we're
4: talking about Title IX. We're talking about federally funded institutions. The University of Wyoming is a public institution, so there is definitely room to explore that. But in general, Expanding Title IX to include gender identity is going to be disastrous for women everywhere. Title IX was put in place to protect women, to prevent discrimination based on sex. But by adding gender identity into the clause, it's doing the exact opposite. Women will be discriminated against, and they're going to be lawfully discriminated against. That's why we need every voice standing up now to oppose it.
0: Absolutely. Alexa, thanks so very much and uh, do well. We really appreciate your reporting. Thank you so much. You betcha. That's Alexa Schwerha, who is a reporter for Campus Reform and, by the way, a Division II collegiate swimmer as well. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show.
2: You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show.
0: Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show and especially to my favorite day of the week, the First Amendment Friday edition of the show where we open up the lines and you're allowed to call in. Now, I always promise that people are going to get honestly provocative talk. Now, it's not just a slogan, but years ago I had to decide, well, how am I going to position this? I mean, how how am I going to describe what we do? And I said, I want to be honest. I'm not going to tell anybody anything that isn't uh, true. And if I can't back it up, then I'll correct it. Uh, and I want to be provocative. I want to make you think about things. So think about this for a moment. Should the color of your skin decide whether you become a doctor or not? Now, since most of us aren't going to be doctors, uh, I had to go to the dentist today. Uh, we care more about what kind of doctor do you have. Should the color of the skin of the person who wants to go to medical school determine whether or not that person gets into medical school? And do you assume that you'll have a better doctor if part of the decision is not just how smart that man or woman is, or pronoun if you prefer, uh, but, but what color their skin is? See, I don't care. I've had I've had doctors of every color. I've had doctors of every gender. Uh, I'm fine with that. Well, Dr. Stanley Goldfarb is the board chair for a group of doctors called do new do no harm, which, of course, uh, refers to that famous adage. First, do no harm. Dr. Goldfarb, welcome back to the program.
5: Well, thank you very much. Great to be with you.
0: Now your group Do No Harm has filed a number of complaints with the US Department of Education because you're accusing five medical schools of doing something that I think both you and you and I would agree is terrible. What what are they doing?
5: Yeah, so what they what they've done is create scholarships that the um the qualifications to get the scholarship are that you have a certain skin color, that you'd be either black or latino or a Pacific Islander. And they very specifically say that unless you're one of those uh, racial groups that you should not apply for the scholarship. These scholarships are for students to come in, and uh, visit the institution and have a chance to work on one or another of the clinical services, such as the emergency room. They, they pay a stipend, they, they give them enough living expenses, and so on. And this is clearly illegal. You know, our country has gone beyond uh, treating people differently because of their skin color and because of their race. And, and this is a return to a, an era that we all are glad is, is well past. I
0: mean, it really uh, is Jim Crow, isn't it, Dr. Goldfarb?
5: Well, it's a reverse one. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's saying that uh, the, these individuals are going to get something that other students, for example, Asian students or South Asian students, aren't just uh, aren't going to be qualified for or white students for that matter and and it's just it's wrong what
0: do you think what dr goldfarb uh, what's motivating this because i think i have my own ideas and i'm no lawyer but it doesn't sound legal to me either but but what is what is motivating the schools to do this to to make choices about who goes to medical school or to encouraging one group over another uh based on skin color
5: Well, you know, it goes to this uh, idea. It's part of critical race theory, really, which says that, um, you know, the only way you can make up for past discrimination is to discriminate currently. Instead of having the Martin Luther King ideal of just treating everybody equally and picking people for any position or any scholarship or any entrance into a medical school based on their qualifications. Now we're going to change that. We're going to base it on their skin color to make up for the fact that many years ago people were denied entry to medical school based on their skin color. Um, and and so I think they think they're doing the right thing, but they're not doing the right thing. They're doing the wrong thing. They're doing something that's going to alienate groups that's going to anger people that are denied this opportunity because of their skin color, whether they be Asian, whether they be South Asian, whether they be uh, even white uh, students. So it's one of these things where there's a, a, a reasonable intent, but there are bad consequences. And those consequences have not been fully thought out. And that's why they've adopted these kinds of policies. Well,
0: I'm glad to see you file these complaints because we've got to get some action on this. But Dr over the years i've followed these cases one of them was baki do you remember the case of baki where a smart sure. young guy said i want to i want to go to medical school and they said at the end of the day the decision was no you can't go we're going to give your slot to somebody else and i always like to remind people the the guy who got the slot who got it on the basis of his skin color turned out to be a real train wreck of a doctor he he actually ended up killing women
5: yeah you know the, i mean there are there are some aspects of life that it it probably doesn't matter that much, but medical, med- medical school and being a physician are not one of those parts of, of existence where the, the qualifications of people don't matter. And, uh, you know, it matters very much, obviously. And we want, when patients come to see their doctor, we want them to think that they, they're seeing the most qualified individuals who are entrusted with their, their health. Nothing is more valuable than that. And that's our concern, you know. If if there's a highly qualified uh, African American student or Latino student, wonderful. Then they should have every opportunity that anyone else has. But now if they're the, not the, highly qualified, but they're but they're being put in this position because of their skin color, that's wrong.
0: I, I agree with you. And just so people know the specific schools that you filed the complaints against university of florida college of medicine university of oklahoma tufts uh, at tulsa university of utah school of medicine university of minnesota school of medicine and medical college of wisconsin doctor do you think based on what you know from the group do no harm that you're you're on the board of are there any medical schools in america that aren't doing this kind of thing
5: you know I think it's it's very widespread there may be there may be one or two out there that you know are we haven't quite encountered, but if one goes online and looks at their curricula looks at their um, what they describe for individuals who might be applying to medical school, there's this issue of trying to you know trying to be anti racist which is basically a racial kind of approach to to the world um, Almost all of them have adopted this, and, and it's it's sort of a madness. It, they really haven't thought through the consequences of this. They haven't thought through uh, how it may undermine the trust that both black and white patients may have in the institutions that they're they're going to, and the physicians that they're going to visit. So it it really is a bad idea that now has, has become very popular and needs to be it needs to be pushed back against as we're trying to do.
0: Dr. Goldfarb is with the group Do No Harm. I want to ask you about the students as well. But I suspect a few years have gone by since you were in medical school, right? Yeah, too many. <laughs> too many. And and But medical school then or now is tough, isn't it?
5: Well, it's not as tough as it used to be. Really? Unfortunately. Wow. The, 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 um, you know, what's happened is because of this idea of, of having to have a very diverse student body, that has required a lowering of standards. And it's lowered the standards for everyone. So medical school now is not really quite as, as rigorous as it used to be. And, and the graduation rates from medical school are very, very high. It's, it's over 98%. And this contrasts with other schools like law school and even nursing school, where there's something like an 8 to 10% attrition rate. So the the reason for this is not that the students are necessarily more intelligent or more hardworking than they used to be. Rather, it's because the requirements to get through medical school have been really watered down, I'm afraid. And so I I... one of my concerns, and, and oh. I wrote a book about this recently. What's it called? Just pointing out, it's called uh, Take Two Aspirins and Call Me by My Pronouns.
7: <laughs> and I love it.
5: It's, it's sort of a humorous title, but the, the book, I, I go through my experiences, because I was the head of the curriculum at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and it goes through the experiences that I I had as well as my observations of what's going on around the country.
0: Well, for all the money, uh, Dr. Goldfarb, thank you very much. But for all the money that it costs to educate a doctor, the standards should be tough. And it's kind of unfair to let people in based on their skin color if they're not academically prepared. It's not fair to them and it's not fair to their future patients. Dr. Stanley Goldfarb with us. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on this Wednesday. You remember that uh, Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, said never let a crisis go to waste. And you can see it taken to heart with a push for gun control after every shooting. But does post-crisis legislation or policy, does it actually accomplish anything or does it make things even worse? And we can certainly see it during the pandemic. Wayne Cruz is vice president for policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Wayne, welcome back to the show
2: thank you so much for having me back on. I
0: appreciate it. Now you made an appeal. Well, I'm glad to have you on. You bring a, a great perspective, but you know, you make a great case that it would be nice if politicians would give up their never let a crisis go to waste mentality. But yeah. is there any realistic way of getting them to voluntarily do this or are the people going to have to force it on them?
2: Here's here's what worried me about this. This the COVID crisis when it when it broke out and when you saw the comment from Rahm Emanuel, when you heard the left going on about reset and then later talking about build back better. It occurred to me that this is the – COVID was the third, not the first, the third crisis of the 21st century. And each time it happens – of course, we had 9-11, we had the financial meltdown – each time it happens, we get new government agencies, new programs, all kinds of new spending that never rolls back, and all sorts of new regulations. I mean, we get new regulatory systems set up that grow the administrative state even before the administrators get involved. So – I thought something's got to change in this, and we've got to do something to expand intergenerational wealth, not intergenerational debt. And so I put this report together, it's called Framing an Abuse of Crisis Crisis Prevention Act, Because we've got to do something to stop them. You said, can we do it? Will the politicians do it on their own? Well, they're not doing it on their own. Because remember, as soon as the crisis happened, the COVID crisis, and there are all kinds of them. You mentioned gun control, too. But as soon as the COVID crisis happened, you had the chamber... Within, within hours, <laughs> with letters and appeals for stimulus payment, for uh, bailout payments to Congress, you had the likes of Apple and Home Depot profiting, billionaires, wealth set records, everybody else is cratered, and we had businesses all treated different. And Lars, the, there's nothing that has changed. If another crisis hits, they will do exactly the same thing. So that's why I put this report together on Abusive Crisis Prevention Act, because we've got to do things where we shore up individuals' wealth. We've got to shore up businesses, and just for example, in their case, we can expand the amount of retained earnings they keep, because we know now that the tax limitations ought to take into account the fact that we know there's going to be a crisis every 10 years, because that's what's happened this This century, so businesses more retained earnings, uh, individuals with more money set aside that can, can be tapped into a crisis with a crisis that then converts to retirement federalism we could you could go on for hours about federalism, but that has been discounted by progressives and eliminated but guess what over 700 billion dollars goes to states every year even before the pandemic to pay for education transportation infrastructure social programs all that money can stay in the states to begin with so that they can shore themselves up so in other words Long story short, we've got to shore up the economy and the voluntary society within it, or there's no chance for limited government to survive. You you can't keep doing crisis after crisis, make it impossible for future generations to have the, to retain their own wealth and to have a government that's not overloaded with debt and also overregulated. So that's why I call for an Abuse of Crisis Prevention Act. Okay, but we need hearing but, but how would it everything?
0: How would it actually? I mean, I could see because I watched what happened Mm -hmm. during the pandemic and I thought they're putting a lot of structures in place and I'll bet they're never going to give them up. All of us. I mean, I I think most people said once they get this authority, they'll never give it up or they'll always keep it in reserve saying we might need this again. Is there any way Mm -hmm. to sunset this stuff and say the expectation is if you say we've got an emergency, like we've got a flood and, and, you know, like Mm -hmm. a town would or an individual would say there's a flood We need to go out and plow up the front yard and make some berms and, and keep, keep the, you know, keep the farm afloat. I've seen farmers do that before. You know, they, they plow up a berm and the flood water goes somewhere else. You say, but you're not going to leave that berm there after the flood, are you? Uh, you, 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 you act in a certain way. I mean heck, if, if it got cold enough and all the power was cut off, do I break up the living room furniture and burn it in the fireplace? Sure, whatever you gotta do yeah. in an emergency. Yeah. But then you say, well, we'll just have to live without furniture now because, because we threw all the furniture in the fireplace. No, you, you end the You say, we're going to keep on burning furniture for, for wood, for heat, honey. I'm, I'm not going to tell my wife that. I, I, I would feel stupid doing it. Could we say when the emergency is over, the powers go away? Period. Yes, and even be, even before the emergency is
2: over, I think a key thing that needs to be done is remember, presidents now, and even Trump did it with the eviction moratorium and the payroll tax holiday and things like that. You have to make sure now that Congress extends any emergency declaration. So right now the president, you know, like 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 now Biden will just continue the continue extending the, the, the deadline on, on the COVID emergency. Congress Michael Senator Mike Lee of Utah has a bill to do this. Any emergency declarations that's 30 days old, Congress would have to approve it or the emergency lapses. But I tell you, the big hurdle that we have in, in rolling this stuff back, the left means it when they talk about reset and they talk about taking this opportunity during a crisis to put into place the other things they want to do. In my view, and I talk about this in the paper, I think the left's North Star for their reset is the universal basic income. And I know there are yep. libertarians and so forth who, who give arguments for this. I, I hate think it. The universal basic income is the plural of apocalypse. You cannot do that because when you get the, the entire society hooked on. Um, on that kind of a, that kind of a, uh, that kind of a seed money, all the time, there's no way to roll back government. And you could see the inklings of the universal basic income in the stimulus payments that went out, even to rich people. You know, and, anybody, and the people like, in prison you could've, you could've for God's sake just say. pay it back. Nobody, yeah. yeah, exactly. And nobody had to pay a penny back. And then even businesses got loans who never needed the loans, let alone the fraud and everything that went on. But businesses got money who, who didn't need it. They never had to pay it back either. So you could see the inkling in, in, the, in the, just the rapid way that this, the COVID uh, payouts went. You could no, see it's, it, it's the of generation of, of what's happening. And, and Lars, if, if another crisis hits, God forbid, they'll do exactly the same thing again if they're not stopped. And so we'll have to discipline, discipline this in some significant ways, and that's what I'm trying to push.
0: And maybe some other kind of balance, because, Wayne, I talked to plenty of people, including my, my adult son and daughter, uh, stepson and daughter, mm-hmm. who said, hey, I didn't take a stimulus check. I didn't get any extra pay for being, you know, for sitting on the couch and playing video games. I worked my job every day. What do I get? Right. And the rest of America yes. is saying all these people got all this money, but it wasn't everybody. It wasn't even a majority and especially the unemployment money, that's Wayne Cruz, Vice President of Policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Wayne, it's always a pleasure. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show, and if you trust her, tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Always glad to get your calls as well. If you want to dial into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers, you go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. And that's not an empty promise. If you call the show and you tell the producers when they answer, uh, I want to tell Lars that he's wrong. They'll say, why? You're going to be a naysayer. You'll go right to the head of the line. Just come prepared with your best argument. Tell me where we disagree. And then I'll allow you to make your argument. And uh, and then I want to ask a few questions to see if I can poke a couple holes in that argument. Our Twitter poll today: Would you carry a credit or debit card that tracks your carbon footprint? It's now being offered to Visa credit card holders through a Vancouver, Canada, uh, it's a save or a credit union. Is they say, we will track all of your purchases and then tell you the carbon footprint of those purchases. I guess this is for people who are hyper concerned about their effect on global warming or climate change or whatever they're calling it this week. I would say no to that idea. I think it's kind of goofy, but for the people who want to be goofy, go ahead. I would say no, uh, to the question itself, though. You can find it at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined, and you should too. Just go to amac.us or call aaa 262 2006 AMAX better. Better for you and better for America. In yesterday's poll, and this was the question, should anyone serve in a high government position who cannot understand spoken speech? Now, I was talking in particular about John Fetterman, who's running for Senate in Pennsylvania, and he is a Democrat and I don't favor his election to represent the people of Pennsylvania. But I would apply this to anyone, Republican or Democrat, man or woman. If you can't easily understand spoken speech so that as a senator or as a representative or as a president or vice president or governor or mayor or member of the state legislature, if you can't understand what people are saying, I don't see how you can do that job. And I had a few emails from folks who said, well, you're talking about discriminating against deaf people i said no i've talked to plenty of deaf people who understand spoken speech well they may need a little help by being able to see your lips so they can lip read they may need a cochlear implant but in the case of john fetterman he seems not to understand and i watched the debate last night with great great interest i'll have more to say about it later on in the show but john fetterman seems incapable of doing the job and even worse than that I think he and his campaign lied to the people of Pennsylvania for the last six months. He had the stroke that he suffered from, and God bless him, I hope he fully recovers. But he said six months ago that his doctors said he would fully recover. And I've read enough about strokes. Uh, I think most of us have had members of the family, I certainly have, who've suffered a stroke. You understand, you're going to see a certain amount of improvement, but most of the estimates I've seen say that after six months, that's going to be about as good as it gets. Well, John Fetterman is at that six-month point, And if last night's performance during the debate is as good as it gets, then he was seriously misleading the people of Pennsylvania when he told them, I'm going to have full recovery according to my doctors. I think that was a lie. And lying to the voters, that's one of the worst things that anybody seeking public office can do. How did you vote? Well, I voted no. I said, you should not serve in a high government position, elected or otherwise, if you can't understand spoken speech. Ninety-one percent of you agreed with me. Nine percent of you were naysayers and said, no, you can serve in a high government position without actually being able to understand what people say. Now, I'll tell you something that really got under my skin, and it was a comment from Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Now, every once in a while, I'll find myself agreeing with her about a decision that she's made. But this one has to go to a piece of personal philosophy. And here's the comment she made. It was reported on by TheHill.com. She said that her fellow justice, Clarence Thomas, who happens to be my favorite uh, member of the U.S. Supreme Court, certainly wouldn't be John Roberts, the the chief justice, because he's disappointed us severely a number of times. Clarence Thomas, I can't remember a single time that I've ever disagreed seriously with Clarence Thomas. But she says that her fellow Justice Thomas cares about legal issues differently than me. She's speaking of herself, adding that she thinks not everyone can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Now, at the risk of quoting a president that I don't particularly care for anymore, and that is George W. Bush. George Bush called that the soft bigotry of low expectations. Now, he was talking about race issues. But I think soft bigotry of low expectations doesn't necessarily have to do with race. Sotomayor, was talking at Chicago's Roosevelt University, praised her colleague and said he cares about people, but he cares differently than I do. Clarence Thomas, who grew up very poor, and he did, if you've ever read uh, biographies of Clarence Thomas, he did. He grew up exceptionally poor. He believes that everyone is capable of pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. I believe not everyone can reach their bootstraps. I think that's foolish. And I think it's dangerous. And I think it's damaging because this is a point of view that says there are certain people who can't get it done without the government or someone else helping them out. I I would accept the people who are physically disabled. I'd say, well, if you're physically disabled, you may need some extra help but there are plenty of physically disabled people who've gone on to do absolutely spectacularly amazing things. So in a way, that's pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, but the average person, any average person not suffering from a disability is capable of doing it too. The disabled can do it, the able-bodied can do it, the people who suffer from no deficits, physical or otherwise, can do it. And yet for Sonia Sotomayor to say, There are certain people who cannot do it on their own. That says we, the government, have to help those people out. And I think that's just plain foolish. Let's go to the calls now. 866-439-5277. Tina's on the line from Idaho. Hey, Tina, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind?
6: Hey, thanks, Lars. So I find it super ironic and, I mean, kind of agreeable in some sense here that John Fetterman is unfit to run for Senate. I think you and I agree on that. Agreed.
0: Agreed. Yep.
6: Okay. But it's kind of odd in a way that, I mean, can you expect anything different from him considering that the leader at the top himself is also incapable of holding office or making any sort of good decisions for our country?
0: We agree on that. I mean, Joe Biden almost got lost on the White House grounds yesterday, wandered off into the bushes.
6: Yes, he couldn't even find his way. And I'm, I'm watching him and Joe walk. And I was like, OK, I mean, this guy doesn't know if he's coming, going, what day it is, what state he's in, what town he's in. And so, yeah, I guess if that's our leader at the top, how can we expect other people to not think they are also fit to run for office?
0: See, and I think that's and the fact that Joe Biden does not mind being dishonest because John Fetterman, I believe, was dishonest. He was dishonest back in May when he had the stroke and then said, I'm going to make a full recovery. And six months later, he clearly has not. Um, and, and to say all the way along to try to hide his inability to do the job. And frankly, most of a senator's job is communication. Tina, I think you make a very good point, and I completely agree with you. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. We'll do that in just a moment. But I want to talk to Terry Jeffrey first, editor-in-chief of CNS News. And the Biden administration has collected a massive amount of taxes, $4.408 trillion in just the first 11 months of fiscal year 2022. The fiscal year runs through August. Uh, and, and then, of course, it, it ends at the end of September, and the new fiscal year starts October 1st. So, Terry, is there a simple way for Americans to understand how it is that a government <laughs> that collects that massive amount of total taxes just at the federal level, that's not state taxes, not local taxes or sales taxes or gas taxes or anything else, how in the world can they be in the red?
8: Really, it's quite remarkable. I mean, like you say, they tax away a record $4.48 trillion dollars. And when you you, ingest all all previous years for inflation, which is what I have done, this is the most the government has ever collected in taxes in the first 11 months of the fiscal year. And despite that fact, they still ran a $945 billion deficit for the first 11 months of this fiscal year. So there's no doubt there's going to be a trillion-dollar-plus deficit for this fiscal year, even while the federal government is collecting more taxes than they ever have in the
0: history of our country now 900 billion just round it off we're basically a trillion dollars short so the simple solution would be wade into that federal budget and find a trillion dollars worth of cuts at some point and maybe not all at once but at least over the next couple of years say we've got to get back to spending no more than we take in that's not unreasonable is it
8: But the problem is the two biggest spending items in the federal government now are the Department of Health and Human Services and the Social Security Administration. And the reason HHS is the highest spending agency of the federal government is because Medicare and Medicaid are included under there. So what you have is you you have the baby boom generation retiring. They're going on Medicare. They're going on Social Security. So we're getting huge benefits paid out for Social Security and Medicare. Plus, there's this large block of the population that has been made dependent on the federal government in recent decades. And they're on Medicaid. And uh, so that's a lot of the money is going into transfer payments through those two elements of the federal government.
0: Now, Terry, I mean, forgive me for I know some people aren't going to like me saying this. But with Medicaid, not Medicare, Medicare is for generally older Americans, Medicaid is for poor Americans, but Medicaid in the law says you can put work requirements with that. In other words, if you have people on Medicaid, you can say to them, you don't get it if you're not at least trying to be employed. And I'm speaking there of people who are able-bodied uh, and are not suffering from some kind of permanent disability if you did that, do they have any idea how much it might change the equation if you told people you got to get a job? Because usually if you if you even give a damn about the job, if you get a job at some point, the boss is going to say, hey, we could put you on full-time and we could probably include benefits in that. We could get you off Medicaid altogether.
8: Yeah, you know, I can't quantify it, but there's no doubt that Medicaid is a big problem for the federal government. You have know, Obamacare on top of that. And it's uh, it, it is a problem, it, 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 and you're right. It's it's very distinct from Medicare and Social Security. At least Medicare and Social Security, people worked all their lives, they paid taxes as a federal government into the Social Security and Medicare programs. Unfortunately, what the federal government did was turn around and spend every single penny of that money on something else, so that now they're having to borrow money to pay the Social Security and Medicare benefits to the people who spent their whole lives paying. Taxes for that program, those programs, but Medicaid is different. Medicaid is a welfare program, and it creates the government dependency for people. And there's, we need to find a way to roll it back. There isn't any question about it. The truth is, the federal government is heading toward what the Congressional Budget Office calls a fiscal crisis, and what that, what that really means is we're going to get to the point where we can't really borrow the money we need to sustain the government we've already built. That people are going to look at the U.S. government and say, wait a minute, this is heading toward a disaster. I don't want to invest my money in treasury securities because I'm not confident that the federal government's going to be able to pay those off in the long run. That's where we're going right now.
0: Well, and Terry, you know that one of the hallmarks of the United States is that we have never gone south on our debt. We have never borrowed money and then not paid it back as a government. Do you have any idea what piece of that is interest payments on the debt? Because I, I, if memory serves, it might be actually be half of that entire deficit is just interest or $500 billion is interest payments right. on the debt, isn't it?
8: You know, it is. And, uh, yeah, it's like 600 something billion in interest on the debt. And the, the, the interesting thing is going right on the debt is over $30 trillion. And part of that debt they call intergovernmental debt, because it's the money that the government borrowed from the Social Security Program when there was a surplus in Social Security Program. They owe it back to the Social Security Program. But the rest of the debt is publicly held debt, some of which is held by the Chinese government, although the Chinese government has stopped increasing its U.S. government debt holdings. And that debt they have to pay cash interest on. And right now, the interest rates on average are relatively low. But a lot of our debt is not in 30-year bonds. It's in sh- shorter notes and bills that roll over in a pretty quick period of time. And as the interest rates start to go up, the amount that the federal government is going to have to pay on the debt and interest is going to go up also. And as the the, the surplus totally dis- from previous taxes disappears, all of our debt eventually is going to be publicly held up. And as I said, the Chinese have stopped increasing their ownership of debt. That's an indicator of people not wanting to buy our debt as much now as they might have 10, 20 years ago. So that's, that's the problem we're headed toward, a place where people say, first of all, the interest they're paying on U.S. Treasury securities isn't enough. I'm not going to invest my money there. Or if they raise the interest rates, which they will, people say, well, wait a minute. I'm not sure that 10 years down the road, this government's going to be able to meet that obligation, so I'm going to invest my money somewhere else. That is the crisis we are headed toward.
0: And by the way, Terry, I mean, I've always had my favorite list, uh, you know, in my head of things I'd love to see cut. The Department of Education costs close to a $100 billion a year. That's 10% of our deficit. And uh, I've said, why don't we just get rid of it all together? And people say, well, that's a lot of people. No, actually, there aren't that many people who work at the Department of Education. It's basically a big grant granting agency where they hand out lots and lots of cash uh to various school districts for special a lot of special programs and studies and things like that dump that you save 100 billion a year you take care of 10 percent of the deficit in one fell swoop and then i'd go to after a few other federal agencies as well but i have a feeling the real target especially in the biden administration will probably end up being the pentagon which is about i think 700 billion of that isn't it it's
8: uh, 600 and something billion, it was so far this year, but I'm sure up being more than 700 billion for the year. But you, no, I agree with you. The Department of Education carries out activities that really aren't functions of the federal government. Public education is a function of local and state government, not the federal government. They never should have created a federal Department of Education.
0: Absolutely. That's Terry Jeffrey from CNS News. Terry, thank you. Anybody who wants to be a naysayer, I'd be glad to take the call at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's the Radio Northwest Network. We try to make it honestly provocative talk radio for the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. And you're invited to that conversation. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you could join me in welcoming back to the program Maria Frost, who is director of the Cole Center for Transportation at the Washington Policy Center. Maria, it's been a while since you've been on. I'm glad to have you back.
9: Thank you for having me, Lars.
0: So tell me this. You've made the case that Governor Jay Inslee of Washington State stopped providing ferry service to many Washingtonians because of bad press. Tell me about that.
9: Yeah, so when the vaccine mandate was imposed by the governor, there were a lot of uh, State Department of Transportation staff, specifically those working for the ferry system, who took sick leave and vacation and did walkouts and various protests, understandably, <laughs> um, of the mandate. And in early October, um, there was a pretty significant amount of you know service that had to be Um, cut because people weren't showing up for work. And um, so around that time, the secretary met with the governor to talk about how to deal with that. And on October 16th, um, the Department of Transportation made the choice to cut service pretty significantly, they said, to increase reliability for riders. And then obviously we know on October 18th, there was massive layoffs, um, you know, over 400 employees of the Department of Transportation. What public disclosure um requests have revealed <laughs> is that when uh, the secretary met with the governor, the governor actually advised the secretary not to make those service reductions, but Secretary Millar insisted on the service reductions not to increase reliability for the public, but as a PR strategy um, to protect the image of the agency. And so in an email to his staff talking about um, how his meeting with the governor went, Secretary Millar said I strongly recommended making reductions now. It'll be a story one time. Daily miss sailings will be a daily story. And so the department made that choice to cut service broadly and convenience hundreds of riders as a PR strategy.
0: I mean, because for some of these people, Maria, there are people I don't live on an island But if if you lived on one of the many islands around Puget Sound and you get used to saying, well, I can catch a couple of ferries in the morning going into, say, Seattle and a couple of ferries in the evening. And all of a sudden there's one sailing in and one sailing out. And if you miss it, you're literally you're literally stranded until the next day. That's the situation some of these people found themselves in. Right.
9: Yes, it was. It was terrible. I mean, I I have friends who were in that situation. It was terrible. And I, on the one hand, I understand the department, you know, saying, I, I don't believe them now, of course, thanks to this public disclosure. But on the one hand, you know, some might argue, they would argue, look, we just made these service cuts so people don't make these plans and end up stranded. Um, but on the other hand, it's clear that that's, that wasn't the driving um, motivator in that decision. And frankly, I don't think that how they look, you know, in the public's eye and and how the press deal with them should be a motivator when they decide what service to provide. The public pays them to provide that service, so they need to do their best to do that on a day-to-day basis rather than just trying to cover themselves and make themselves look good. And, you know, disappointingly, another one of the emails that was sent back to Secretary Millar in response was from another one of his um, deputy directors, I think. And she agreed with his recommendation to the governor, but also made this comment. She said, the longer we don't reduce service, the more dramatic the reductions will look. Later October. And what she's saying there is like, hey, the added benefit of making these cuts now is because in about a week, we're going to be firing a bunch of people. (laughs) Let's make the cuts now rather than making broad cuts after all the firings because we don't want it to look as bad as we know it will be. To me, that is just really atrocious and really inappropriate for a public agency.
0: Well, and Maria, you know what I'd like to know? I mean, maybe both of these guys came in to the meeting, the governor and Millar and just quietly agreed not to even talk about the alternative, which would be, let's give some more latitude to employees who say, I'm not taking the shot, and if you make me do it, I'm going to quit, or I'm not going to show up, and I'm going to take as much vacation as I can. Did either one of them say, maybe we should reconsider the mandate, and maybe we should back off on this and actually provide the service that we get paid to provide and if neither one of them brought that issue up i'd love to ask malar and i'll tell you what we'll put a request in i don't have any great hopes of getting him on the show but i'd like to know did you ever say to the governor governor these mandates are going to cripple the service the people have already paid for maybe we should reconsider them and and either soften them up or forgive them altogether, because there are a bunch of private companies that initially went with a mandate for the jab, and then later said, and some of them airlines I'm thinking of, where they said, no, no, we're going to back off from the mandate. We're going to make it more voluntary, because they realized they were about to cripple themselves. Now, that's the private sector. But in in the government sector, apparently, it's screw the public. Who cares?
9: Yeah, I mean, I think that would be more than appropriate, long overdue conversation for them to have. This vaccine vaccine mandate is harmful. It is yielding negative returns. There are real trade-offs here. It's not, you know, it's not just about Covid, you have to consider other realities, especially you know, and we saw this very clearly last winter, when they, you know, for all the passes were closed for four days, halting mobility for the entire state. I mean, there's safety issues for the public. There's safety issues for existing staff who are stretched thin, working seven days a week. That's what happened last winter. I mean, at this point, I don't. I, I frankly am shocked that the vaccine mandate is is still in in place. It doesn't make any any sense to me
0: well especially maria because i know there are people who deeply believe in the vaccine i don't but if you believe in it but you say but from a practical standpoint it doesn't seem to offer that much protection against the new variants it's not you know we were told way back when if we get a vaccine as soon as we get to 60 or 70 percent vaccination we're going to basically wipe this disease out That isn't happening either. So you're you're getting the cost of the mandate without what was supposed to be the benefit of the mandate, aren't you?
9: Right, the reduction in transmission. I mean, supposedly this was supposed to help, um, you know, keep COVID from spreading. But we are seeing that both vaccinated and unvaccinated people can spread COVID, and so you know, at this point, Maria, Maria, if
0: I can interject. Didn't Seattle just have an entire cruise ship where the entire cruise ship, their entire staff, all the passengers on board were all vaccinated and they still had a major outbreak and they had to cancel the sailing, right?
9: Well, we're seeing in King County. I mean, there was there were headlines not too long ago about the COVID spike in King County in general, which has some of the highest vaccination rates in the state. And so, I think it's pretty clear that the COVID vaccine does not reduce transmission. There are certainly, you know, people may argue there are benefits, as, you know, with regard to you know keeping people who are infected with COVID from ending up in the hospital or or dying and reducing some of those side effects. But those should be personal decisions that people are able to make for themselves.
0: They, they should. That's Maria Frost. She's the director of the Cole Center for Transportation, the Washington Policy Center. You decide you want to set me straight. Why naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-HEY-LARS. That's eight six six four three nine five two seven seven. Send your emails to talk at larslarson.com. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show on the Radio Northwest Network.
2: You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
0: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I thought maybe a little palate cleanser would be to talk about contaminated food with our friend Aaron Mesh, the news editor for Willamette Week. Aaron, welcome back to the program. And were you happy or sad after last night's primary election?
7: I mean, mostly I was frustrated the Blazers ended up with the seventh pick in the lottery.
0: (laughs) Okay, fair enough. I see where your priorities are. Let's talk about Sophie Peel's story because this one doesn't surprise me. Uh It used to be that mobile food was referred to as the roach coach. Now, I understand that some of the food carts yeah. produce a much better product than what used to pull up outside of uh, big industrial locations or, or even sawmills in the Northwest. They're not roach coaches anymore. But apparently some of them, even the people running them, have said, hey, this is an opportunity to get contaminated food, and part of the problem is what they call these pods. Describe what a pod is for my audience who may or may not have visited one of these places.
7: Yeah, it's actually pretty simple. So a pod at the parking lot. So back in uh, about a decade ago, really, like, as, as Portland went through sort of a, a downturn, uh, during the last recession and during the lack of construction 15 years ago, uh, a bunch of property owners said, you know, I ought to make some, some rent money off of these empty parking lots and gravel lots that were supposed to be construction. Uh, and so they brought in collections of somewhere between 12 and 25 food carts. And some of those pods or like, you know, clusters of food carts have become kind of famous. There's Cartopia, there's Cartlandia. These are like little outdoor, fo- basically they're outdoor food courts. Think of Washington Square Mall, but outside, uh, and not as clean. Yeah, sure. That's that's, that's sort of the problem is that uh, that the carts themselves get health inspections. And here's the loophole is that the, the parking lots themselves don't fall under much regulation and in many cases don't provide some basic sanitation. So the problem that we have here is you have uh, a failure to do trash pickup. You have uh, not uh, hookups that aren't working on no, on waste water. Uh, you know, if you don't have trash pickup, you know what happens next. You're going to get rats. So uh, this this is a problem happening across the city. And Sophie looked at one pod in particular, not the worst of them by any means, but just one representative example of uh, of cart owners who are frustrated.
0: And and in fact, this is called Hawthorne Asylum in this case. And you had five of the cart owners who used to be there, who went on the record, and uh, some of them said, look, the place is unsanitary. In some cases, they just dropped out and said, I'm moving elsewhere, or they were kicked out. And they say the unsanitary conditions, I should say, uh, are part of the reason they left. Are they right? I I think that they, I think some of them are a little more disgruntled than they
7: ought to be. And, and, you know, you and I often go over this on on the radio and, and point out that, like, what did you expect is a phrase that you ask me a lot. And I think that it's fair to ask the question, what, what did you expect? Uh, so, but I do think that they have some valid gripes. And I think the overarching picture that's painted here that is worth remembering is when you go to a food cart pod, not all of them. Some of them are real nice. Like, I, I really enjoy eating at, Car- at Cartopia, which is also on Hawthorne, which feels like a really nice bar patio but some of these places it's essentially like choosing to eat at a construction site like you have a gravel lot you have a you have a food truck that rolls up and you have a bunch of pork like and i suppose that like there's a certain buyer beware quality to that like if you are going to eat in a in a construction at a construction site and go use the porta john afterwards maybe it won't be very clean
0: well then how can we expect the people working in the food pods You know, because there are sanitation rules that you know, if you're working in a food pod, you need to go to use the restroom. You got to wash your hands with warm, you know, soap and warm water. And and I'm assuming that in many of these places, that's not available. So do we just in a state where they regulate everything to the nth degree? They simply ignore the need for regulations here and sort of have a tragedy of the commons, you know, as we used to call it, where, where. where the, the pods themselves are inspected, but everything around them is not, because it doesn't actually belong to any of them.
7: No, I love that you bring up the first tragedy of the commons. That's exactly what this is. Uh, it's, it, is a, it is a classic case where the regulators keep a very close eye on the businesses, but not the environment in which the businesses operate that's a jointly shared place. Uh, and, and the county now says they're working on regulating it, uh, but they've been saying that since 2019.
0: Well, what, working on regulating it for years, I mean, for one thing, Aaron, I've run into, you know, I have to deal with inspectors, too, on projects I've done over the years. And I remember one time I said, can I have a wood countertop in my kitchen? They said, as long as you make sure it's not absorbent and and what's the logic i mean there's actually logic behind the rule because if you put a slab of chicken down on a wood countertop mm-hmm. that it, that is absorbent then the chicken juice the raw chicken juice ends up in the countertop then when you make your salad there or you put your hands there you get to have salmonella or e coli or some other yeah. disgusting disease and you say you can't do that there but i'm guessing that at many of these food card pods you're going out to sit down and eat if it's a picnic table, it's the kind we're all used to. It's got absorbent wood all over it, which means everything in it is everything that's been on it for the last six months or the last time it was pressure washed, right?
7: I think there's some there's some truth to that. Like, I mean, the difference to some degree is that when you're eating at the picnic table, you're probably eating cooked food at that point. But but I see your larger point, which is,
0: you know, yeah. But if somebody else is a cooked food that was there a week ago. Has been sitting there in the open, in the sun, in the warmth for a week. What exactly happens to that? I think I know enough biology to know what happens to the, you know, the the juices and everything else that end up in that picnic table after you set them out in the sun for a week. I, I
7: think you're right. I, I'm not. I'm not here to argue with you. These places are clean. In fact, the opposite is the case.
0: So do you want to? Do you want to uh, get into politics for a moment here? I mean, I I want oh, people I, to read I, how, Sophie how can, Peels' How can we help story. ourselves? well let's talk right. about now i got an email from a gentleman who said i can't believe that joanne hardesty won and i said well perish that thought she didn't win she is the anti-cop uh, racial chip on the shoulder permanently uh, person who sits on the city council and accuses the cops of crimes Uh, falsely uh, defames the cops, wants to defund the cops. She did get 39 percent, but because she didn't get 50 percent plus one vote, she has to go into a runoff this fall and she may keep the same 39 percent or she may get 50 percent plus one in November. Any thoughts on Joanne Hardesty's candidacy for the Portland City Council?
7: I mean, this was the best case scenario for her. So I'm not in any way predicting that she's going to win in November. I think that's a complete coin flip right now. You're correct if, uh, that if you tallied up Joanne versus people who don't like Joanne, then Joanne gets 40% and not Joanne gets 60%. So those right. are good odds for her opponent in November, who is probably going to be Renee Gonzalez. Uh, that said, November tends to be a more progressive electorate. Uh, there's a lot more people voting. Uh, a lot of whom may not be familiar with city, with city politics uh, it's a it's a crapshoot i would i would put the i would put the odds at just flat 50-50 right now
0: okay because when she goes up one on one uh and instead of one on you know what was it three she was running against or two she was running against two serious candidates Too like serious there, there candidates. were
7: probably another another seven people in the race but like you know who like are a Santa Claus or whatever
0: and maybe she'll get some of them but I hope she loses because and, and, and I began the day, Aaron, by citing a new NBC News poll that says 75 percent of respondents to a liberal news organization's poll said America is on the wrong track. Now, that couldn't be just Republicans because we aren't 75 percent of the country. If two if three quarters of the people in this country, things things are going the wrong way. And I would say here in the northwest, there may even be a stronger sentiment of that. If they get in and say, hey, we should uh, reelect the person who's been making things bad all this time and let's just put her back in for another term in office. That doesn't seem very likely, even if you get a bunch more liberals to show up in November. But that's my take on it. Any final word? That's Aaron Mesh, the news editor for Willamette Week. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you and i'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism it's right here every day at 866 hey lars that's 866-439-5277 and by the way naysayers go to the head of the line at that number Uh, we've done that for 25 years we're going to keep right on doing it when somebody disagrees with my point of view or perhaps the point of view of somebody who's a guest on the show you are free to disagree but you better come armed with some facts and some logic and a good sense of answering some questions as well so call the number if you like if you want to uh, send me an email instead talk at larslarson.com i want to tell you i've got a real concern that american education has two primary faults in my point of view right now. Number one, it's not doing the job we expected to do, which is giving kids the basics. In other words, do most kids leave the American education system with a solid knowledge of reading, writing, arithmetic, history, social studies, and that sort of thing? I don't think they do. And I think the numbers bear that out. Too many states have a high dropout rate, Too many states have kids who don't even make the minimum marks on tests that are designed to show whether or not the kids actually learned the things they were supposed to be taught. Instead, American schools have been turned into kind of an indoctrination factory. Now, you've heard me talk about issues like critical race theory. That's a kind of ugly indoctrination of kids that tells them that if you have brown skin, you're part of an oppressed class of people. If you have brown or black skin, if you have white skin, you're part of the oppressor class. You are part of systemic, uh, in, uh, systemic racism in America. Both of those indictments, both of those indoctrinations are wrong. Then we've got uh, teachers who want to indoctrinate kids in terms of sexual matters, telling little boys and little girls, you don't have to keep the gender you were born with, um, and those kinds of things. And also, a fair amount of grooming activity by teachers who have their own sexual agenda. I'm not describing every teacher, but too many teachers. If there's more than one, there are too many teachers who are trying to indoctrinate kids to certain kind of sexual backgrounds that is, frankly, none of their business. If a child wants to talk to mom or dad about uh, changing their sexuality or about expressing a certain kind of sexuality, that is their business. It is not the business of government employees of a government-run school system. And then there's this, the latest indoctrination that we've become aware of, indoctrinating brand new kids who've come into this country who are English as a second language (ESL) kids into violent resistance. Now, if you think that is too broad, consider this report from Epic Times: At Charlestown High School in the city of Boston, certain teachers are instructing students who are learning English who recently arrived in the United States and those teachers may be indoctrinating the kids to incite violence as a form of resistance to their alleged oppressors. That's the report from Epic Times. Now, let me give you the particulars on this. The classroom files of three of the school's teachers in the Sheltered English Immersion Program. Now, I'm not against immersion programs. If you want to learn a language, the best way to do it is learn enough of the basics and then essentially spend the entire day speaking that language that's whether you're going from English to Spanish English to German English to Russian if you are going from a foreign language into US English immersion is the smartest and quickest way to make you competent in it but the files these files I'm talking about are currently available for download on the Boston Teachers Union website as always Teachers unions are part of the problem. The teachers teach humanities to 9th and 10th grade students who recently arrived in America from places like El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, and China. That's according to the Boston Teachers Union website. One part of the curriculum profiled on the website involves notes and assignments around oppression, resistance, and narrative structure. An example of the oppression at the institutional level was identified as Trump builds a wall on the border so it is harder for Latinos to enter the United States. This is what we're doing. We're taking kids from foreign countries where they've enjoyed almost no freedoms at all, not economic freedom, maybe not religious freedom. They certainly don't enjoy the freedoms that Americans do. And we're teaching them that the United States is an oppressive form of government That forces things on people at the interpersonal level one example was a husband tells his wife she must stay home to cook and clean an example of oppression at the internalized level an Asian girl hates her eyes she thinks she is ugly so she gets surgery to change them not that I think it's likely that a child in elementary school middle school or high school is going to go out and get surgery to change her physical appearance I'm not sure how many plastic surgeons there are out there who would even operate on a child without at least including the parents in that decision. Students were then asked to list different forms of resistance for each level of oppression. We're teaching some of the newest people in America. Some of them may not even be citizens, may not even be here legally, but they are entitled, because the Supreme Court says they are, to an American education. And we're teaching them to engage in resistance, even violent resistance against what America stands for. Anybody who wants to be a naysayer and tell me that's a great idea, I'd be glad to take the call at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs, but how do you explain them to your customers?
1: Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business
0: startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds?
1: Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio.
2: Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to IRAadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement,
7: your way. Visit the professionals today at IRAadvantage.com.